and welcome to The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. Before we get to the show, let's get the pleasantries out of the way. First of all, our website. If you want more information about our little podcast, go to wearethecontrarians.com. That's where you'll find links to our old episodes, to our Patreon channel, and to our awesome Contrarians merch. You can show your support by buying a Contrarians mug or a pillow. I like the laptop bags myself. Second of all, if you enjoy the show, tell your friends. Or even go a step further and leave us a five-star review on whatever platform you use to listen to your podcasts. Finally, if you want to reach out directly to us, that's what social media is for. Find us on Twitter and Instagram at Contrarian Prime, or check out our Facebook page at facebook.com slash Contrarian Prime. Julio runs our official Twitter account at Contrarian Prime, but if you want to give me a piece of your mind or just want to banter about pro wrestling, you can follow me at Contrarian Alex. That's it. That's our intro. Now, time for the show. This is And we are recording for Contrarian's Corner for the long goodbye. Hello, and welcome back to the Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. My name is Alex, joined as always here on the the eternal fight of the contrary is my co-host, Julio Oliveira. Julio, it's not often that we dive into noir, and you um, historically aren't the biggest fan of the genre, so how you feeling coming into today's episode? I think that we need to set the record straight. We've done one, I think, noir movie and on the show, and out of the two of us, you are the one who doesn't even remember the movie. Uh, referring, of course, to Mute, uh, neo-noir that Alex has completely blocked from uh, his memory. Was that the one with Paul Rudd with a mustache? Yes. Okay, I remember that. That's that's the extent of it, there though. You go. Okay, well, uh, and then what well, we both liked, Under the Silver Lake, on the Patreon. So, yes. So, so we're, you know, half and we're, half. We're, we're batting 500. Yeah. Um, but going back in our time machine, uh, as we typically stick within the, the past 30 years of filmmaking, going way back to 1973, with The Long Goodbye, uh, a familiar name to the contrarians. It's been a long time since he showed up, too, but uh, Robert Altman, um, but making his debut, Elliot Gould in the. Well, not uh, quite, lead. Alex, the Muppeton. He was in two oh, Muppet duh. movies. Yeah, he tried to fuck Miss Piggy. I forgot about that. You're yes. right. Yes. Yeah. Also, in a uh, way, you could say he wasn't physically part of the French Travaganza, but he was part of the French Travaganza. He's Ross and Monica's dad. I guess I should just clarify. Leading man Elliot Gould making his debut <laughs> yes. as uh, Philip Marlowe, who was uh, a character with a, a bit of backstory. Um We'll get into that a bit more in the second half, though. But just get right into it, Julio. Uh, we are joined today by a guest who um, I guess you could say and to some extent specializes in the genre. Julio, who's going to be helping us uh, ring in the long goodbye? Yes, uh, this is this is a long time coming. Uh, our friend Dale Bridges, uh, he, those of you who have been listening for a while, you you know, you've kind of been tracking the story of how we got to this episode. Because Dale contacted us, he had a, a book that he had written, and uh, he let us read it, and we liked it a lot. And we told you about it, and then we said, you know, this guy's pretty funny. It would be funny to have him on the show and and talk about a a noir movie because his book is has a lot to do with film noir. And so here we are. We told Dale, hey, pick a movie that you would like to do on the show. And uh, I don't know why it never even crossed my mind that he was going to pick The Long Goodbye, you know, because there's other noir titles that kind of like 
jump to the top of the list and I, I was bracing myself for something from the 40s and I was like I'm gonna have to really really get through uh, Humphrey Bogart being weird but instead he, he <laughs> gave us Elliot Gould and so here we are Dale welcome to the Contrarians thank you for having me I really appreciate it um and Alia Gould is being weird here too so I mean we didn't get completely out of the weird that's yeah. true there's some fairly problematic behavior throughout this movie. <laughs> yeah, problematic. <laughs> well, it's for not sure. limited to Elliot Gould. It's uh, it's just all through. It, that was the seventies, Alex. It was America was a problematic country. Thank God we've moved past <laughs> that, and we're yeah. now we're okay. It's, yeah, we have that behind us now. <laughs> uh, Dale, let's um, before we go into the into what we do here on the show, let's talk about, a little bit about your book so that it makes a little more sense for the people that they are listening. Obviously. I don't want you to spoil the book for anyone because I think it's a delight to read and just kind of like see the twists and turns as they unfold. But tell us a little bit about the book. Uh, what What is this Mean Reds business? Yeah, you bet. Um, I, I would say probably a lot of your listeners, um, and th that's kind of how I know um, when people will uh, probably like the book is if they they sort of know what the title means or have an inkling. Um, but it's a quote from Breakfast at Tiffany's where uh, Holly Golightly is – is uh, She's saying that she has she gets depression once in a while, and and um, her potential paramour is like, oh, you get the blues, and she's like, no, these aren't the blues; these are the mean reds, which is quoted in the book. That movie is one of the narrator's uh, favorites. He is a movie reviewer in a small town, and he's just sort of obsessed with older movies, and he writes movie reviews for the local paper. It's a small alt weekly paper, and at the beginning of the book. There is an unfortunate death of an exotic dancer at an unpopular strip club. And it's a small paper and um, everybody else is busy. And so the editor says, you have to write this story about that. And uh, it happens to be on this the same day that a local film festival is starting. And so he is uh, sort of trying to juggle both very badly. He's a very bad journalist, um, while also uh, imbibing quite a bit of alcohol and, and drugs and uh, everything goes horribly wrong. Sounds like a good time at the, well, I was going to say at the movies, but really a good time yeah. of reading. Uh, this is even before watching the, the, the Long Goodbye, because you could draw a lot of parallels, I think, between your book and The Long Goodbye. And we will, yeah. I think, on the second half of the show. But uh, even before watching Long Goodbye, you can also draw parallels between your book and a whole bunch of noir movies because you know he's a detective and he the plot gets more and more complicated as he as he goes along there is yeah that's what he's trying to do for sure he wants to be he wants to be the detective in the noir movie and he's sort of forcing that narrative onto the situation even though it doesn't always fit yeah yeah and quoting a lot from old movies there's a lot of old movie references constantly throughout and noir is sort of the the premier genre of the that he's uh yeah using in the in the book yeah, that, that's something I called out, actually, the first time I told Alex about it. It was just the, the movie references just hit you here, there. And that could always, I, I think it's risky, you know, because I, I think that maybe, I mean, I was 100% the audience for this book because I was catching all of them. And even the ones that I didn't know 100%, I was like, oh, but I, I know I've heard of this. And it was just, right. uh, uh, you know, this was, these were my people. They were like <laughs> speaking my language. And I don't know. I'm very curious to see how my wife will react to reading it because she's not as uh -huh. much of a cinephile. I want to know what the experience is like when you read it and you're not a cinephile and you're just uh, – I was watching the the um, Clockwork Orange the other night 
and you know they make up their own language in that movie. Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> and so if you don't know the movie references, is that kind of like the experience of, of of reading this book? Of you know, I don't know what they're talking about, but it makes sense. Yeah, what is this odd sort of like yeah movie reference? Yeah, it is. It is absolutely a a book for film nerds. Sort of unapologetically, hopefully, and and let me know how your wife uh, perceives it too, because I am also interested. So far, it's been pretty well received by people who, um, you know, just like no- movies a normal amount, not like us, um, <laughs> who who watch them uh, and then debate them constantly or whatever. Um, so there's, I think there's the hard movie references, the one where. Uh, even hardcore movie nerds, because I've dropped some 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 Easter eggs in there with like character names and stuff that are pretty obscure. Um, that you kind of like that, and they might even just be from me. Uh, and then some really light stuff that sort of everybody has heard about, and and kind of and and hopefully, if you haven't heard of the things, it doesn't you know obstruct the plot for you. That's mostly the uh, the feedback I've been getting so far. But I just want I wrote the book that. I wanted to read and people like us would want to read. And I'm, you know, I hope it connects to the larger public too, but that was the book that I wanted to write. So um, I didn't worry about too much as, as far as that goes, like whether or not everybody else was going to be able to, to pick up on everything. But I, I think they are people, people have been responding well so far. That's, that's good to hear. Um, now leading a little bit into the, the long goodbye and the, the noir of it all. Did you just happen to fall into noir when you were decided to write this book? Or, you know, what came first, the mean reds or noir for you? Like, were you like, I'm going to write a book that's steeped into the noir tropes? Or is that just something that happened as you started writing the story? Yeah, good question. Um, it was it was definitely not preconceived. Um, I, I We've talked about this. My uh, love of old movies kind of comes from um, being raised in a very religious household. My dad was a fundamentalist preacher in a small town. Um, mm. I wasn't allowed to go to the movie theater or dances or, you know, listen to music, which is a lot like Footloose, but with slightly <laughs> less Kenny Loggins music. Uh, but that's I was allowed to listen watch old movies um because you know the uh there was no nudity there was no profanity and you know there's some serious stuff going in all it, happening in old movies but it just wasn't the type of stuff that my dad was concerned about so I was allowed and so while my all my peers were like you know watching uh all the John Hughes movies and and uh, different things like that I was watching Bogart and and Bacall and and you know all those those old movies and that's where my nostalgia and my love of movies first developed. And so when I started thinking of this book, I was more just thinking of me, like my life as a character at that period in my life. I was working at a newspaper and I was the arts and entertainment editor. So I was doing reviews of, you know, movies and books and, and TV and stuff like that. And so I was just started sort of perceive, like thinking about that, that character for, you know, a long time and sort of developing that idea and then bringing in the plot of the, um, uh, the exotic dancer who, uh, dies, which is also something that happened while I was, uh, um, working for the newspaper. Oh, wow. Not the death, <laughs> not the death of an ex, I, I should go back. A, a strip club opens on the Pearl Street Mall in Boulder, Colorado, and the locals freaked 
out. That is what happened. Okay. Um, yeah. Because <laughs> the Pearl Street Mall is like their like center shopping district. And, and we suddenly got all these, you know, emails, um, uh, from soccer moms and, and dads about how, you know, what was going to happen is, is it drugs and prostitution next? And, and I wrote a story about it. And so that's, that's, and so I sort of incorporated that. And there's a local film festival there called the Boulder International Film Festival that I, I had a press pass to. So, you know, I started incorporating all these things into an idea and the noir genre just fits so well, right? Of like mm-hmm. the character, as I was thinking of, becomes more and more, you know, a delusional character that, you know, is just wrapped up in his own fantasy world. And that's just sort of the perfect fantasy world for this particular scenario. So I do love noir movies, but like the fact that um, this book is so noir heavy was just more of uh it you know if like it works well with the plot and i i did go it just and it also gave me an excuse to go back and watch all the noir that i like i'd seen and rewatch it and then watch all the new stuff so i just i just went on a binge and it was just you know that excuse to completely succumb to <laughs> you know the things that you love so it was, mm-hmm. it was i could i could write it off as research and uh yeah it was a lot of fun I think that sets the table well, because having binged all those uh, noir movies, I'm, I'm sure The Long Goodbye was part of that mm-hmm. that marathon. And uh, so I, I'm really looking forward to what you have to say about it once we get to Real Talk before. I don't even know if you like this movie or if you just thought it would be good for discussion. So I have no idea uh, how Contreras Corner is going to go for you. But uh, I know Alex and I hadn't seen it before. So... Um, I guess, Alex, do you want to do you want to explain what we do here in the Contrarians before we launch into Contrarians Corner? Uh, so, if this is your first time listening, thank you so much. If you're a returning listener, you know this is the part where we explain what we do. So, just hang tight with us. So, here on the Contrarians, we like to rage against the Rotten Tomatoes machine. That is our battle cry. Find a movie on Rotten Tomatoes that is highly rated, a lot of times known as certified fresh. And what we'll do is cut that movie down to size and explain perhaps why that uh, high score, that high percentage, that uh, beautiful IP, the the trademarked logo of certified fresh, maybe isn't telling the whole story. Some aspects that critics may have gotten wrong about um, their reviews or thoughts on said film. Conversely, find a movie that is lowly rated, about 30% and below is where we typically shoot, and make a case, as you can imagine, for that film's positive merit, maybe why that low rating isn't exactly just, uh, being that the long goodbye is ni- uh, towering 95% on the old RT. In the first portion here, we will be uh, bringing it down to size. Oh, it has the certified fresh logo as well, so it's 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 it extra ta- extra tasty. But that all goes into comprising the first half of our podcast, uh, what we call Contrarian's Corner. Uh, And we do this, our mission statement comes basically from two ideals. One, uh, obviously shit is subjective. You can be as over the moon or as cynical about something as you want to be if you set your mind and your heart to it. Number two, uh, that Julio and I find a lot of times that people don't really understand... um, maybe not understand, but maybe put too much value in those Rotten Tomatoes scores. And uh, we find often that they don't always tell the whole story of a movie and that it's kind of difficult to give a percentage rating to a movie when uh, there's all types of shit that goes into it. Um, But again, that's the first half. That's Contrarian's Corner. Julio, if listeners want to know how uh, you and I, and in the case of uh, today, our guests feel about uh, the movie we're discussing, they just need to hang around for uh, part two, the second half. That is correct. Part two, 
the aptly titled Real Talk. That's where we tell you how we really feel about the movies. We forget about the tomato meter score, forget about the gimmick. It's just how we experienced, in this case, the long goodbye. First time watch for me. I'll be honest with you guys. I watched it one and a half times. So I was based on my previous experience with noir. I was like, I, I'm going to need at least two watch throughs just to probably to piece it all together. But then I got sick, ran out of time. So halfway through, I had to restart it and just start taking notes. Uh, so I wonder how that affected my experience. Alex, you just watched it this morning. Dale has probably watched it 50 times. Uh, if you guys want to know how we really feel about Elio Gold's misadventures in L.A. for real, not not doing the contrarian's corner thing, uh, just check out Real Talk. But like Alex said, this is super fresh. So first, we're going to be very negative about it uh, in contrarian's corner. Uh, where did you go last night, Marlon? Oh, is this where I'm supposed to say, what is all this about? And he says, uh, shut up, I asked the question. Yeah, yeah, that's right, Marlon. All right, well, The Long Goodbye, as I mentioned, we're going back to 1973, released on March 7th of that year. Directed by Robert Altman, who coming into this, uh, The Delinquents Countdown, The Cold Day in the Park, MASH, Brewster McLeod, McCabe and Mrs. Miller, and Images uh, was uh, the his feature film credits that he was writing coming into this. Uh, written by Lee Brackett. No, not the sheriff from Halloween, not Charles Cipher. <laughs> but of course, the Charles Cipher's character in Halloween was named after this Lee Brackett. Um, I didn't know that. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. And along with the rest of the world, we all learned that Charles Cipher is still alive when Halloween Kills came out a few years ago. Uh, <laughs> right. Yeah. So The Long Goodbye stars Elliot Gould. In the leading role, it is a noir. It's based on the Long Goodbye, the Raymond Chandler novel from 1953. And at the time, the reception was uh, lukewarm, to say the least. But today stands with a 95% rating on Rotten Tomatoes. So, Julio, the critics that contribute to that score, what what are they saying about Monica and Ross's dad in the leading role here? <laughs> uh, all right. I'm going to start with Noel Murray from The Dissolve who says, The Long Goodbye as a whole peels back the surfaces of private eye stories, paying special attention to their matchup luster and abused women. A lot of abused women in this movie. Alex, uh, were you rattled? By, were you expecting this from The Long Goodbye? Because that, that was one of the things where I was like, man, I thought we were going to have a good time. And then it's just these big, burly men slapping women around. It, it, it was really a, a turnoff. Yeah, not to jump too far ahead, but the uh, our crime lord, uh, I forget his name, the little squirrely his guy. Name looks like Marty Augustine. Augustine, that's it. Yes. Yeah. Uh, Mark Mark Rydell. Yeah, that, that's uh, not unlike the scene in the '89 Batman where Jack Nicholson's just like Bob Gun and then shoots Bob, and he has that. <laughs> in this case, though, it's a Coca Cola bottle that he smashes over his uh, mistress's face, and a little that more scene, distressing. Uh, yeah, and it. It does not really cut away too quickly. It, you just kind of have to watch it. So there is some uh, disturbing sequences in this movie, I will say. Yeah, uh, I I think that it's okay to demystify, deconstruct the genres, but it, should we do it at the cost of fun? Like, Mr. Oldman, can we just have fun with the detective story instead of watching the, the abuse unfold uncut? Uh, I, I'm not sure that I'm behind that. Uh, next. Patrick McDonald from WBGR-FM. 
Monroe, Wisconsin, says this is 1970s Los Angeles at its finest, wrapped up and delivered by the master Robert Altman, and Elliot Gould as Philip Marlowe is a tick-filled cat lover at his finest kind. Um, Dale, I'm going to go on a limb and say that you are a cat person, because there's a cat in your book, and uh, you have paintings of cats on your Instagram. There's a cat sleeping right beside me as we speak. Good man. Yeah. I, I, I have, am a cat person. I have four cats. And uh, the way that Elliot Gould handles his cat in this movie gave me anxiety. <laughs> is that is that something? Am I being too sensitive or, or is he a terrible pet owner? I, I hadn't thought of it like that. But yeah, I mean, he does sort of manhandle that. I love this cat. Is it like the most expressive cat and maybe my favorite cat scene of any movie? The cat's the best actor in the entire <laughs> Uh, I guess it was two cats, uh, by the way, anybody who's interested, two identical cats that uh, did the uh, Mary-Kate and Ashley thing, I guess, in the movie. But yeah, that whole funny scene where the cats – I don't know how they, that cats are like jumping up on his shoulder. The cat's like you know, getting on the, on the, on the thing. Um, he, di- he does definitely miss – and then he just loses the cat and it's – yeah. He's a very bad cat owner for sure. Yeah, the biggest uh, question in the movie is like, what happened to the cat? And it never gets answered. So for shame. Uh, Alan R. Howard from The Hollywood Reporter says, The Long Goodbye is a gloriously inspired tribute to Hollywood that never loses sight of what Los Angeles has become. What has Los Angeles become? I am like, I am hopeful that the... um that expression or quote love letter to Hollywood did not fucking exist in 1973. <laughs> if you said something like that, you get slapped for saying that. So uh, I resent that review. Well, Alex, we were just talking, you, you just came back from LA. And uh, so now watching a movie about LA, did you, did you draw parallels? Could you see like the echoes of the seventies in your adventures in LA a couple of weeks ago? I mean, yeah, like on Hollywood Boulevard and shit, like they, really try to maintain a feel of yesteryear in Hollywood and whatnot. Um, how many uh, How many topless women doing yoga did you see while you were in L.A.? Sadly, none. Uh, but According to this movie, you should have saw at least a dozen. Yeah. At, at least. <laughs> Maybe yeah. you were not looking up because they're all on the top floor. That's what I need to do. I need to go back and do like, because I didn't do any of the tours. I want to do like the real crime tour and then I also <laughs> yeah. need to do like the Hollywood tour. Like, yeah, look for apartments that have a stoplight outside on the balcony that's what that's how you know for sure that's where the real yeah. shit is happening alex that's where they point if you look up there you can see elliot gould's house of whores that are currently <laughs> performing yoga topless on the on the deck <laughs> all right we're gonna close with sean levy from the oregonian who says when he was very near the top of his early peak robert altman did the darndest thing and made a private eye movie or maybe a parody of a private eye movie. It's hard to say. And he may never have topped it. I think it's a problem when people can't tell if you're doing an actual movie <laughs> or a parody movie. Uh, you should be able to know that. So if, if Sean Levy can't tell, I don't know why he gave it a fresh tomato. I was like, too confusing. Um, where, do, where do we land on this? Is this Robert Oldman making the worst detective movie on purpose or making the worst detective movie <laughs> Not realizing is this it. Robert Altman's uh, Hangover Three? Is this you know <laughs> where we'll debate till the end of time if it was like cynical and purposeful or just actually really bad? It's a heartfelt love letter to Hollywood and detectives, Alex. Uh yeah, I, I don't, 
I'm not sure about that. I, th- I could see someone through like modern lenses observing a movie like this and thinking that, you know, some of the strange or, you know, I mentioned the word problematic earlier, the aspects of it are like intentional. And it's like, nah, that's just how they did shit back then. Making Al Jolson jokes in the police station. <laughs> that was just law enforcement back in the 70s. Again, we've come a long way. So pat yourself in the back, America. Altman has a weird relationship with Hollywood in general and his movie, uh, like the player is like, you know, mm-hmm. not um, <laughs> saying a lot of positive things about Hollywood. Um, so yeah, it's, it's hard to say, but he's an interesting, he's an interesting filmmaker in that aspect as for sure. Uh, what's her first name? Eileen. Uh, well, what's their address? Jimmy Stewart. Right. Right. All right. Well, let's get to this. Uh, since we do have a guest, I'll kind of just more guide the uh, the premise here, as we will do from time to time. Our friends at Wikipedia will kick us off. After looking for cat food for, at a supermarket, Philip Marlowe discovers his close friend, Terry Lennox, in his home. Lennox asks for a lift from Los Angeles to the California-Mexico border at Tijuana. Marlowe obliges. On returning home, Marlowe is met by two police detectives who ask questions about Lennox and then arrest Marlowe because he refuses to answer any questions. During questioning, Marlowe learns that Lennox has been accused of killing his wife, Sylvia. After he is jailed for three days, the police release him because they have learned that Lennox has committed suicide in Mexico. The police and press seem to believe it is an obvious case, but Marlowe does not accept the official facts. Uh, As we mentioned Philip Marlowe, this is not his debut as a character. Uh, we'll get into that a little bit more in the, the second half. But Elliot Gould in the lead here. And yeah, guys, um, the first 10 minutes of this movie is a quest for cat food. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it it keeps going. You think that it was just a, a cute opening bit, but then he comes back and we're like, oh, we're still dealing with the cat food thing. He We watch him try to fool his cat into thinking that uh, he got the right kind of food and when he got the wrong kind of food, it's it just keeps going on and on. And I think that that is this movie in a nutshell. It just keeps going on and on about things, <laughs> not particularly interested in moving the plot forward. The Coens definitely liked this movie. Like <laughs> that whole like opening in the, in the grocery store and the big Lebowski in the grocery store. Yeah, there's so many weird parallels. Um, and thinking of like who was making a parody, a parody noir movie for sure. Like, is, um, like did the Coens just decide to go all in on that and say one up Robert Altman? Or I think so. I think that that's you know they saw the potential in what Robert Altman had tried to do, and they're like, okay, but how about we actually make it funny? And then they yeah. they just cast Jeff Bridges. But that's actually a really good point because. Um, I mean, we already said we don't have that much experience with noir, but there is a clear shift between uh, the protagonist that we have here in The Long Goodbye, who is more along the lines of what you will see later with the dude in The Big Lebowski and, uh, you know, even somebody like uh, uh, Andrew Garfield in Under the Silver Lake, right? Mm -hmm. He's just disheveled. He doesn't have his shit together. He's just kind of like bumbling around life. And... uh, just a few weeks ago, I watched uh, The Big Sleep. I, I I mentioned it on the show because I wanted to prepare for The Long Goodbye by watching what, uh, uh, Humphrey Bogart's take on the character and Philip Marlowe. And it is night and day. <laughs> the way that Marlowe is presented in The in the Big Sleep. I know, Alex, you haven't seen it, but uh, you can probably kind of imagine if I tell you it's Humphrey Bogart playing uh, Philip Marlowe. You know, he's, uh, he's quippy, uh, but not in the way that Elliot Gould is here, where Gould kind of sounds like he's just stoned and he's just mumbling 
sometimes to himself, sometimes to other people. Like Bogart is just very exact in the way that he delivers his dialogue. And uh, he looks like he is actually running a private detective business. I don't know what Elliot Gould looks like. I don't know how he makes a living here. <laughs> and it's distressing. So what's the deal here? Like, is it just like the reinvention of the of the private detective stereotype, uh, you know, and making him more relatable or making him more of a loser? Is that you being the, the noir person here uh, just by default, Dale? <laughs> uh, how do you how do you reconcile the two versions of Philip Marlowe and, and you know, those yeah, two Yeah, that's decades? kind of... That's one of the main reasons that I picked uh, this movie. I thought about it for a while and I, I wanted to pick something that sort of bridged the gap between classic noir and like the neo-noir that, you know, we still sort of have uh, going today. And I feel that this movie is the one and is, is part of the reason why it was so badly received when it came out is um, they talk a lot in interviews and stuff about the poster and how they got the poster wrong. If you've seen the old posters, the first poster was like a cool one that you would expect you know, Marlowe to be on like a, you know, uh, like a Humphrey Bogart type poster with the, with the uh, tagline of nothing says goodbye, like a bullet. Um, <laughs> and it was all cool and sexy. And people were expecting the, that like classic noir story. And then they got to this, like, yeah, very first mumblecore movie um, where <laughs> Elliot Gould is murmuring under his breath all the, all the goddamn time. And, and it's a, the first 10 minutes is about a cat he can't find. He's not a very good detective. He can't even find the cat. Um, and he's like, uh, the, he's all rumpled. He's disheveled. He does wear a tie, um, but like he looks like crap the whole time. It's a crap suit. And so, yeah, I think it, it sort of bridges the gap between the two. Um, and plays around um, somewhat with that, and maybe successfully, maybe not. Um, there's, there's definitely the jury's out on that part. Well, Alex, do you think it's our loss that that, that we we lost the archetype of the put together detective in favor of the detective that can't even find his own cat? I mean, what's the what's the goalpost? Who's like our put together detective, Julio? That you would look at as being like, this is who we need in noir films. Well, see, now for me is Bogart, because I, I, I haven't watched The Big Sleep. I'm like, oh, that's what everybody's been talking yeah. about all this time, you know? Uh, even before watching The Big Sleep, I, I think I knew that. I mean, I knew that he was in it. And I'd seen uh, The Maltese Falcon. And, you know, he's also there, uh, you know, a detective there. And I think there's something regal about the black and white. <laughs> so, yeah. and when you see Elliot Gould in full Technicolor, yeah. just unshaven, greasy, sweaty. And and kind of, yeah, Kind of a, like a gritty t- color too. Yeah, everybody is sweaty, and it's kind. Of, yeah, it's kind of a gross color too. Like you know what I mean. Like it just feels like I feel a little bit of like like I need to take a shower after I watch this movie. <laughs> Wondering why haven't they showered? Like him, the cops, the the, the people, uh, everybody, everybody. Yeah. Listen, someday, someday, all the pigs are going to be in here, and all the people are going to be out there. You can bet on that. Listen, yeah. Dave. Remember, you're not in here. It's just your body. See you when you get out. Uh, the problem with the long goodbye is that I feel like the movie wants me to take it seriously, and part of it is just because of the name involved. You know, Robert Oldman. Oh, he's like a serious filmmaker, and uh, and then just the way it's shot and everything, and the, and there's like tinges of uh, I would say social political commentary throughout the movie that makes me feel like I'm supposed to be, you know, taking this Marlowe guy seriously. His his adventures are happening in real America where there's racism and you know, social strife out there. Some some dude's girlfriend got uh, arrested for being at a protest and uh, and then he is in jail because he hit the cop that arrested her. And I was like, oh, that is 
that is the real world. But then we have all this other uh, uh, stuff that doesn't really, you know, that I don't find as compelling. So, uh, yeah, that's that's my take. I think that we we didn't need the deconstruction of the of the detective archetype in a serious movie. I think we needed it in a comedy, which came later. So we get to the our first example of the um, theme of the movie, the long goodbye, which is the only song with the exception of the opening and closing that plays throughout it. They just do like different covers of it. It gets very, very tiresome. Uh, Terry Lennox is introduced. As I mentioned, he looks extremely suspicious, has scratches on his face and his fists are bloodied up on like a, you know, bare knuckle prize fighter. So he puts his driving gloves on, a la Ryan Gosling and Drive many years later. <laughs> uh, shows up, go to Tijuana, drops him off. Elliot comes back, as we mentioned, questioned, arrested. Uh, we do see an example of some terrific customer service, though, in the jailhouse as the uh, gentleman that helped him the night before at the supermarket's also been arrested and asks how the cat food was, uh, how his cat's doing. <laughs> So, he was better in the jail than he was at the supermarket. He was dismissive in the supermarket. It's true. <laughs> uh, very problematic interrogation scene, including homophobia and blackface, if you can believe it, all in the same sequence. Um, I mean, wh- what more is there to say other than, you know, that's just how things were back then. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. It's uh, It was the 70s. Uh, these cops, are we supposed to dislike them, Alex? I guess is that, that's how you get us on board with the Marlowe character. You just put him surrounded by people that are so hateful that they're like, okay, we got to side with Elliot Gould now. I mean, a little bit of real talk. I mean, this was still Vietnam and that whole thing was very fresh in everyone's mind. And so like the idea of military and police and shit like that, that it was very easy to make them bad guys in a movie that's meant to appeal to like a hipper audience. So they didn't have to do too much. Um, this is where we learn that Sylvia Lennox is dead. I know it said the guy looked crazy suspicious, but oh, Lennox is dead uh, because <laughs> Elliot Gould gets freed after being held for three days. Uh, and we learn that he has allegedly committed suicide. Did you buy it? Well, you know what I did buy is the um, cellmate that Elliot Gould had. Did you catch who that was? Yeah. Is it uh, one of the Carradines? Carradines? Dave, David Carradine, yeah. David okay. Carradine, yes. Doing a great job. Is he uh, uncredited? He, he is uncredited. Both him and uh, another significantly large name in this movie is uncredited, or are uncredited, <laughs> excuse me. Um, just kind of random. One of those, uh, you guys mentioned Cohen's. I think this. there's a lot, like Quentin Tarantino probably watched this movie and masturbated quite a bit when he was younger. <laughs> like The dialogue and the... The um, like yeah. that scene is so Tarantino of having a name that's just there to go on this long interrupted, you know, soliloquy, and then the scene's over and that character never comes back. That's like you know Tarantino one hundred and one. So <laughs> true. Uh, so he's dead in Mexico, committed suicide. He says, uh, fresh out the joint. <laughs> Why not? Philip Marlowe goes to a local watering hole. Uh, I. The only reason I took note of this is because I'm fat and they had a sign on the wall that said 75 cent fish and chips. And I <laughs> literally, yeah, I <laughs> having been in L.A. a few weeks ago and I paid $20 for fish and chips, I was like, God, what a time to be alive. <laughs> and also the bartender is dressed like a 1980s World Wrestling Federation referee. He's got the baby blue shirt with the, t- <laughs> the bow tie on. 
It was tremendous. So this is his, uh, his answering service, right? This yeah, is where this he... is the bar and, yeah, his, yeah, his secretary service or whatever. Because this segues right into he, he gets a new job, a new case to go scope out with um, Eileen Wade. Isn't that where she comes into the fray here? Yeah. Right. She wants him yep. to find uh, her husband. So we're not even, you know, what happened to the mystery of, of, what, of uh, Lennox, right? Because nobody watching the movie buys that he actually committed suicide. Uh, we know that that's the big mystery, right? Uh, Elliot Gould. Marlowe says that there's no way that he had committed suicide. There's no way that he murdered his wife. So the movie is just opening up the questions. Like, who's the real killer? Who killed uh, Lennox's wife and who killed Lennox? But then I was like, never mind. Now we're going to go on this missing <laughs> this person's right. case. Yeah. It just leaves you hanging. We're going to go to this uh, uh, missing person's case in the same like um, apartment area or uh, uh i don't know uh they live in the just basically the same place yeah it's a, the, the same condominium alex when you went to la did you keep running into the same 10 people like uh, Marlo does <laughs> in this movie? uh can't say that i did but one of those things is we're introduced to a character that serves almost no purpose he comes back up throughout the movie i don't even know if the character has a name the uh but it, now is as good a time as any to talk about him since we've been focusing on elliot gould the uh, area like the of condominiums where Eileen lives has a security guard at the front that is like, I guess, the comic relief for the movie because throughout it we see him doing impressions of Jimmy Stewart, um, Barbara Stanwyck. Yeah, 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 yeah. and he uh, he's just testing out his material. So I guess he's like the actor who's got a side job that's still trying to make it out in Hollywood, uh, but you know. This guy, he deserves his propers because he, the actor that is, I think if I'm reading this correctly, Ken Sam Sansom uh, is the actor's name. And I believe he is the actor that he, like, that was re- real. Like, he took this and he was like, he had a side job and he moved out to LA to become an actor <laughs> and he got this role and he's like, God damn it, I'm going to give this my all. And <laughs> yeah. he, he goes full board into this. Yeah, Robert Altman said in an interview, like he's like he like he just sort of showed up, and he thought his impressions were terrible, and he's like, yeah, just go, yeah, do that. <laughs> <laughs> I thought his impressions were good, but like Altman was like, yeah, he did these terrible impressions of all these hokey like old Hollywood. I was like, yeah, that we'll do that a few times. Why not? So this guy thinks that he's just killing it with the impressions, <laughs> yeah. and Altman and the rest of the crew are just like giggling behind the camera, just telling him, yeah, ham it up, do more. <laughs> So, you guys can help me out here. Roger Wade is the uh, target who he's trying to track down. And when we do find him, is he being uh, – the story is he's a raging alcoholic and he goes to the same place to dry out. But when we find him here, that doesn't necessarily look to be the case. It looks as though he's being held against his will. I mean, obviously, more of this comes to fruition as the movie goes on. But I found this a bit confusing as a viewer. Wouldn't you yeah. know it? It's it's a noir movie with a confusing plot. I think we've reached that part of the story where – you just kind of have to throw your hands up in the air and go like, uh, I guess but so. But we also reached the part of Henry Gibson, who is a wonderfully weird little freak. What What is wrong with that guy? He's Dr. Verringer, and um, God, he's so creepy. I was trying to figure out where the fuck I knew Henry Gibson from. It's, uh, <laughs> I mean, he has a very storied filmography, but it's Wedding Crashers. He's the priest in that. I, uh, I couldn't figure out. Or the pastor. I, I can't yeah, he was a the- character actor in so many old stuff. Like he's almost always creepy, almost always a creeper. But yeah, the the doctor is trying to get 
way to pay the rest of his bill or whatever. Um, it doesn't seem like they can really hold him. It's, uh, it seems more like the doctor has some sort of psychological hold over Wade, but that you you don't really understand where it comes from throughout a lot of the movie. Yeah, I, I haven't watched this movie one and a half times. I can tell you that I still don't know how Wade ended up in there. Like, did he check himself in? Did the doctor check him in? Like, that it's... Uh, I'm not sure who how he ended up there because obviously he wanted out. So <laughs> also I would bring up like how does Marlowe find this place? That was my next the, question. His <laughs> wife says he he drives out in his usual places. This is not his usual place. And Marlowe just goes straight to there. He doesn't go he doesn't go ask anybody. He doesn't go looking around at several he just shows up directly at the right place and is like, "Hey, do you guys know if this guy is here?" Right. Are we supposed to assume that he hit it right on the first right. clinic that he visited? Or has he been yeah. doing this for every clinic in L.A.? Uh, Alex, how, how do you like this this new bad guy, the Dr. Verger? Uh This guy feels like a mad scientist. He, he's like Donald Pleasance in The the Freak Maker. It's just kind of <laughs> yeah. like, what, what kind of turn is this movie about to take? I would um, also like to point out, like, d- just if the audience watches it, watch him run. During yes. the scene where he runs after Marlo, the way he runs is so <laughs> hilarious and and also creepy. I don't know how you run creepy, but he runs creepy. I like your face, too. I feel you're someone I can trust. Well, you got me, lady. Now, femme fatales, you know, kind of a staple of the noir uh, genre. Uh, we've had so far in the story uh, the, the yoga, the naked yoga neighbors. I don't think they qualify. Ah, yes. Now we have uh, this guy, uh, Wade's wife, who is not what I would think of when I think of a femme fatale, but I guess it's the closest this movie gets, right? She seems to have some sort of connection with Marlowe. Were you guys buying that that sexual chemistry uh, between them? Uh, I mean, it wasn't what I would consider like hot and heavy, but... Marlowe's strangely non-sexual. <laughs> Well, I got the impression that Philip Marlowe like cleans up though. That's the part of the movie we don't see. Like <laughs> not necessarily like he's not pulling tens all the time, but like I get the impression that like if he wants to go to a bar, he's not coming home alone. Yeah. <laughs> so it was his choice not to hook up with uh Mrs. Wade just right here from the start. Doesn't let pleasure get in the way of business, you know. I feel she was definitely flirting with him and he was he was flirting back in his own weird way. She seemed to want to keep him around as a buffer against Roger, her husband, because he's been abusive, physically abusive already, right? Yeah, but I mean, I don't know. That guy's big and burly, and I don't think that, uh, I mean, I guess depending on how intoxicated he is, but I, I don't think that Marlowe, that Elliot Gould's Marlowe can stand a chance against this well, dude. But I, I, yeah, I think he's maybe a stand-in for Hemingway or something. Like, <laughs> I, I, his outfits also, I love. He has, he has like these big billowy white shirts that he wears a belt around his like his his not in his pants, like around the <laughs> shirt, like a toga or something. I'm like, who dresses like that? But also, we we find later on. I mean, I don't, skipping ahead or whatever. But the the doctor, I mean, he he comes off all tough and blustery. But when it comes right down to conflict. Uh, Roger Wade isn't necessarily the man's man that he portrays himself to be. Yeah, that's that. That was disappointing. I, I was expecting Roger Wade to be, you know, when they finally unleash him, because they build him up as he's gonna be like he's a force yeah. to be reckoned with, and 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 ends up nothing. Even his death, his eventual death, is pretty unimpressive. Good a segue as any. Roger Wade, played by Sterling Hayden, 
based on what I read, seems like there was a couple scenes of his that were almost entirely improv. Mm-hmm. Um, was he drunk? Yeah, it sounds like th- <laughs> that some of that wasn't necessarily a work that he was shoot drunk for at least. Yeah, he was notoriously drunk at this point. I guess he during the um, like Red Scare, he had named several actors as far as that blacklist. Um, mm. like four or five other people, and he just never got over his own. He just felt terrible about that and and had a drinking problem and never really got over that the rest of his life. So, shit. so Robert Oldman cast him in this movie where he gets slapped by a yes. smaller man just to humble him. Yeah, get exactly. Him. Yeah, This leads into the aforementioned Marty Augustine, Mark Rydell appearing. Uh, he's obviously connected or in charge he's got a bunch of muscle that surrounds him they attack uh philip they ransack his apartment looking for cash and this is where we learn that terry lennox owed him a substantial amount of money and he believes now that he's left that money with marlo which of course philip legitimately has no knowledge of this this is a scene we mentioned where uh marty takes a coke bottle smashes it over his um mistress girlfriend whatever terminology you want to use uh, causes some serious damage. We find, see her later in the movie. She's got like the old school NBA nose guard on and her jaws like wired shut. It's it's heavy shit, man. Yeah. Comes kind of out of nowhere. He's, he also says this great line. I sleep with a lot of girls, but I make love to you. <laughs> Dude, that's something you you can get away with until you're maybe like 25. If you cheat on your girlfriend or boyfriend and say, <laughs> you know, I sleep with a lot of people, but I make love to you. <laughs> <laughs> and then you get yeah. the, the bottle, the Coke bottle to the head. <laughs> right. Jesus. Yes. If you can find a Coke bottle anymore. Yeah. Mexican Coke. The, there you go. It's uh, the big bottle. Uh, okay. So we find out, though, that Augustine is tied up with Wade as Augustine. If if I interpret this correctly, Augustine owes Wade a bunch of money. So Augustine's falling behind and. This well, that's what, be that's what Wade him. says. I don't know that that's ever... <laughs> he's also a lush. Who knows what the fuck <laughs> yes, he's talking about. Because uh, Mrs. Wade says it was the other way around, that Wade owed Augustine money. So There's there's like three separate things going <laughs> yeah, on. Yes. There's yes. Uh, the Lennox mystery, who is kind of like left out there in the wind from the beginning of the movie. Then you have the, the Wade story, which is like, he just found him, by the way. It was, you know, that's that's how it works out for Philip Marlowe. They told him, find him, and then he went and found him. Yeah. And, and we're yeah. still, we still had half a movie left, but he just solved that mystery. And then, uh, <laughs> and now the Augustine thread, which is like, he wants the money that Lennox owes him, but then he goes and visits the Wades, and we don't know what he wants. <laughs> but yeah. depending on who you ask, he owes him money, or they owe him money. And, and the money that he, uh, that Lennox was supposed to have included a variety of $5,000 bills. Yeah, we learned this because one of them gets sent to Philip. And I actually got on my phone and I was like, Does this exist? Uh, it did. Yeah. They, yeah. uh, really? They, yeah, the $5,000 bill was issued during the Revolutionary War and they were, uh, in circulation and usable up until July 14th of 1969. They were last printed in 1945, but people were still using them for another 20 years after that. Um, it was the asshole just, that would just go to the grocery store and say, can you break this? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I got to do laundry. <laughs> yeah, like you get a pack of smokes and you pay with a $5,000 <laughs> bill. Got to bring yeah. in the Garda truck. Uh, learning of this whole money situation, or at least uh, Wade's side of it, 
um, Roger Wade's side of it, is this weird scene that's like the Oscar clip for the movie that doesn't involve the lead. <laughs> yes. It's this, it's a big fight between Eileen and Roger <laughs> that's like, you know, really well played and is definitely yeah. the thing you would show for like, um, Julio, would this be the best film or best uh, screenplay clip? Oh, man. No, it has to be best screenplay. I don't think that they'll be so clueless as to not have Elliot Gould in the in the clip for best movie. That'll be, <laughs> you know, good call, deliciously good call. subversive. But I don't think the Academy is going to do that. No, it'll be uh, best screenplay. But they include one of those shots where you see Elliot Gould in the background, like all the way out there in the beach. <laughs> yeah, out through the window. Whoever yeah. the studio was was convinced that Gould was going to be the next guy and just forced Altman to have him in the lead. And he's like, fine, <laughs> but the best scene of the movie, he's not going to be anywhere to be found. So is this is this the heart of the movie though, Alex? It's, you know, because you're right, it's it's one of the heaviest uh, scenes, but it's 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 also I think it feels like the most realistic uh, scenario, which is this this toxic relationship, this marriage that's falling apart. He clearly is abusive toward her, and she is trying to leave, but she can't. And now here she's telling him that she's going to leave. Uh, well, she's a bit abusive towards him too, you know, talking about how his dick doesn't work and shit, but you know, <laughs> that's uh honestly, that was, it's like the most tense scene in the movie. And I was really like afraid he was, you know, we had already had enough man on woman violence in this. I was afraid that's where the scene was going and I was kind of glad it didn't, but yeah, it's, it's tense and it's, um, Blue Valentine marriage story. They're just saying really mean things to each other. And, but he, like, you know, is presumably shit faced, but has the moment of clarity where he's like, remember the good times we had together. <laughs> yeah. He also uses, uh, I was going to ask you this, uh, uh, Dale, you're a, you're a writer and he brings up writer's block. It's kind of, you know, the excuse yeah. to be shitty. It's like sometimes when you can't write, it just it changes you, and you become yeah. a terrible person. It, tell me, as a writer, is he full of shit? I think I think all movies that depict uh, writers like this are are pretty much full of shit. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's it's certainly a frustration, but like every writer knows, you know that sort of stuff sort of comes and goes, and so you just wait it out you know, until the next thing. But like, obviously I think there have been, I, once again, I think it's very, uh, I love that it's Hemingway based, I think, is that, you know, this very macho guy that when you really cut him down, he's kind of like not all that what he's kept to be and like psychologically just, I mean, Hemingway also, like the few times that he was with like actually strong women, women, um, I can't remember, um, who he was with, who was a war reporter, but like she was much more badass than him and he just couldn't, couldn't handle it and ended up like, <laughs> you know, the relationship didn't work out like that. So, but yeah, it reminds me of that. Um, and, uh, but I did, I like the depiction of a writer of uh, like, it's the, not a heroic depiction of all at all. It's not like romanticized. He's a, he's an asshole and there's a lot of writers like that. So I liked it. Well, I hope that 20 years from now, we don't hear from you just being stuck in some sort of <laughs> clinic, trying to force you to pay the $4,600 yeah, you owe. <laughs> I wish you'd take that goddamn J.C. Penny tie off, huh? And settle down with me, and what you and I are going to do is have a little old-fashioned man-to-man drinking party. Well, that's okay with me, but I'm not going to take my tie off. All right. Marlo goes down to investigate the case a bit further in Mexico at the scene of the crime. He wants to you know, talk to the local authorities on you know the details of his death and the situation surrounding it evidence what have you were you disappointed that we didn't get a full-on spanish version of the long goodbye 
We kind of do. But, but, we, but they don't sing it. The funeral procession. That would have a mariachi long goodbye would have been really cool, I think, actually. <laughs> yeah, it's That's like, a missed opportunity dude, for sure. It, well, when the it's exactly like Rocky Three when the <laughs> local high school band is playing the Rocky theme song. It's like, why the fuck do they know this song? Like, why, why, why? They, they saw the other movies, obviously. Like, <laughs> Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Come on. So this, this funeral procession had seen the rough cut that they weren't in <laughs> yeah. of the long goodbye. And we're like, all right, we got to play this song. Uh, you know, we're talking about Altman making sure he gets his shit in, in this movie. What is up with that just lingering shot of those two dogs having sex in Mexico? <laughs> I mean, I, I guess it's a commentary on it's a dog fuck dog world. That couldn't be set up though. Right. Like that's I hope not. They just had to have gone to a location and the, like Altman, the weirdo, his camera finds it and he's like, yeah, I'm just going to cut away from gold for 20, 30 <laughs> seconds while we watch these dogs do it. Yeah. That, that's exactly what my thought was. Cause that's not like, you know, uh, speaking of Altman, the player that, uh, towards the beginning, yeah. that really long uninterrupted shot that, you know, yeah. that all depends on the actions of humans. And that's something you can control. You're exactly right. I imagine he's just doing this panning shot and then he's like, well, these dogs are having sex. I'm going to linger <laughs> on it. Maybe it'll make the movie. Who knows? But I, I hope this is something he went to like bat for that. The studio was like, all right, we're going to cut this. And he's like, I walk if you cut this. <laughs> Oh, we got to talk a little bit about how Mexico is depicted in the movie, don't you think? Like, a, a, yeah, a corrupt this, place where bodies disappear. Immediately dirty animals running afoul. Um, yeah. Law enforcement's loosey-goosey, to say the very least. Well, the, I found the – yeah, I mean, I, it's definitely problematic in some ways and then some ways more interesting than a lot of movies of this era depict uh, Central or South America. I mean, I've definitely been to uh, a few border towns and they can be kind of dicey. Um, but mm-hmm. this one was particularly like, like, yeah, there's no paved roads. There's no, th- there's like dogs humping in the street. It's a, it's a weird depiction. The, and then the police are sort like they're nicer than the United States police. That's true. They're, they're just as corrupt, but, uh, yeah, <laughs> but they're nicer. They're friendly. But I did like they, they do seem very co- competent in their corruptness. Like they're very good <laughs> at, at like you know, do, they're doing, they're very polite. It, it's overall, think, it doesn't paint that terrible. It, it could be worse. Like I think that if you have to choose between LA and Tijuana in this movie, I mean, it's 50 yeah. 50. Yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point. Also, like, one of the few times, like, Gould is not, um, he's not callous throughout most of the movie, but I do feel that he, when they, they have like a funeral procession there, he, everybody sort of stands up and there's like, they're having a moment of silence and he's like, like cracking jokes in the middle of it. <laughs> he's he's not a nice person, Elliot Gould. Yeah. He just happens to it. I think it's more noticeable in Mexico because it's, uh, you know, he's surrounded by nicer people. When he's in L.A., he's an asshole, but there are bigger assholes around him. So it just tones him down. All right. So as the story devolves, we find out a bit more in terms of everyone's own money. Verringer's own five grand uh, from the um, visit that Wade had with him. Obviously, there's a situation of the money with Wade and Augustine. So it's all just kind of unraveling. And of course, our character, our lead character, Philip Marlowe, is tied up in all of it. Uh, Roger Wade commits suicide by just running out into the ocean. It's a uh, mm-hmm. pretty terrifying scene because obviously that was filmed on a beach and there's really... Elliot Gould almost drowned in that scene. Um, yeah, that makes sense. That, like, 
I mean, riptides exist, but also just the ocean at night. Like uh-huh. there's, you, you that you can't control that. So that uh, that scene gave me a lot of anxiety, especially with that dog out there too. Um, and the dog yeah, and he get, comes he, back know, with the cane in his mouth. Yeah, that's, he steals nice the scene. <laughs> Yeah. Dogs and cats steal a lot of scenes in this movie. <laughs> this is why, Alex, uh, and I know you don't want to hear this, but this is why we CGI water now. To, <laughs> well, to uh, keep people safe. Unless you're James Cameron, I don't want to hear the argument. All right. <laughs> <laughs> um, so before, do you think that uh, what causes this, uh, this suicide? Because uh, it's never spelled out. But, you know, first of all, he was, he was throwing a great party and he got humiliated by, by the doctor. That's when oh, he gets yeah, slapped. that's a good scene. But yeah. he also he also hints at maybe thinking that there's something going on between uh, Marlo and his wife. That and then, you know, there's the implied, you know, potential guilt because Marlo immediately jumps to the conclusion that he's the one that killed Sylvia. Uh, I mean, also just drinking. I am fortunate. I enjoy drinking and I've never been like a depressed or angry drunk. Um, but like watching shit like this, it's like, God damn. If that's how you get when you drink, why do you drink, man? And then, like, it just seems like the bottle pushed him over the edge, and he got in a fight with the ocean and lost really bad. <laughs> he um, did look like he was swinging when he went in there. It, it, yeah, he's gone. He's done. We lost weight. We yeah. did, and in the wake of that, no pun intended. Um, <laughs> Philip Marlowe still seems to be pretty drunk and is trying to like <laughs> piece together this case and figure out, you know, what's going on. And he just like jumps to the conclusion that he killed Sylvia and that he was with Veringer as like his alibi afterwards. And he owed him the five grand for that. So he goes up to the cops. He's like, hey, I figured it out. And he starts (laughs) yelling at the detective, you know, what happened? And the cops just like, yeah, we know all that. Get the fuck out of my face. (laughs) And he kind of badgers a confession out of um, Eileen, too, which is a time like Marlowe seems sort of a buffoon throughout a lot of it. And then there's a certain time where he just like gets real serious and there and like turns on, I guess, like he can't really be a detective. But he basically like yells at her until she admits that she thinks that her husband killed uh, Sylvia. Here's the problem, because it all kind of like fits together. You know, he's drunk and he's putting it together yeah. and we're putting it together with him. Yeah. But then... The last 10, 15 minutes of movie proved that all of this was wrong. <laughs> None of it. Right? right? Because we know that Wade didn't kill Sylvia. And we know that, uh, you know, Lennox is not dead. So the cops are in the right. They're, they're correct in not taking him seriously because he's 100% wrong. <laughs> <laughs> right? I think that it would have been a lot more satisfying if uh, if he never figured out, you know, like the movie ends with him believing this. He creates this story that makes all the pieces fit. And then... The ending is not him going to Mexico and finding Lennox, but instead he stays in L.A. And then we, like the audience, see Lennox still alive in in Mexico. And it's like that's the final reveal for us. But, the you know, the the movie's underscoring that really Elliot Gould doesn't know anything. Marlowe's a terrible detective. Maybe he was good back in the day (laughs) when when he was played by Humphrey Bogart. But the point of casting Elliot Gould as Marlowe is to prove that this is just not a viable profession anymore. <laughs> like men, uh, you know, after all the drinking and, and just the, the way that his life has gone, he's just not, he can't handle these these type of mysteries. Are you lying about Roger? Your crazy Looney Tune husband could have killed Sylvia Lennox. Could have killed Sylvia Lennox. But with this new information, he goes to visit Marty Augustine, 
can one of y'all explain to me the scene? I looked down at my phone to read something about the movie, and then I looked up and they were all like stripping. Oh, I would <laughs> love I would love to explain this scene to you. Please do. If it was possible. So they cut they come into the room and um Augustine's back to like, I want you know, I want my money back, and Marlo's like, I, I still don't have it or whatever. Uh Joanna, which is the woman that gets hurt, um what well, not hurt, she was hit with the Coke bottle, comes back in. Um a, this is the first time Arnold is in the group. The group is like this very um, diverse group. That's one thing about these group of hoods. You got an Italian, you got a Mexican, you got a Jew, you got like every – like they sort of point this out. Arnold wasn't in there before, but now he is. And uh, Marty Augustine tells this story about how he came to a realization about what he had done to Joanna was wrong and he went – to uh, apologize to her in in the hospital, and he was so moved, like by his own apology, I guess he just he stripped off his clothes to just be like completely naked and completely vulnerable, and then uh, Marlowe makes some sort of half joke about like, yeah, well, I mean, I guess you know you want me to strip off my clothes now, and and, and he's like, yeah. Yeah, take. He's like, in fact, let's all take off our clothes. And then one of the henchmen, who's Pepe, he's he goes, he goes, um, but boss, I'd really, I have a lot of scars, and I don't really. And he's like, it's okay. Instead of getting mad, he's like, it's okay, Pepe. I know you're self conscious <laughs> about your scars. You can go in the other room while the rest of it. And then everybody proceeds to take off their clothes, except for Marlo, who's just like sitting there, like, what's going on? Um, one of the henchmen, Harry, uh, who is Jewish, he's like, "Yeah, your father was a Moyle, yeah, right. You're going to, no, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you're, so then we're going gonna, to circumcise uh, Marlowe. Yeah, you're the- going to circumcise Marlowe, and then and then they find out that the money's back, and they don't have to circumcise Marlowe. Thus, robbing us from a scene where Elliot Gould was actually naked on screen. Could yeah. happen. I, I thought that that's where we were headed. They teased us, and then they took it away from us. So apparently Arnold's agent just contacted Altman and was like, please, like, you know, give him a place. Just let it let him stand in the movie. And at that time, Arnold was going by Arnold Strong. That was his like, <laughs> like actor name, Arnold Strong. Um, and so, yeah, they just had him come in and stand. And I love the, the you do see a part where Ellie Gould like looks because Arnold's like right next to him. He looks at him, he kind of glances down at his package and almost cracks up. Uh, it's a great scene. Yeah. Alex, how long did it take you to recognize Arnold Schwarzenegger in this movie? Immediately. I was about to say, for our listeners, I know we uh, cryptically referenced another big name that was uncredited in this. And yes, it is Arnold Schwarzenegger, 11 years before uh, the Terminator. And, you know, with a mustache, too. With a mustache <laughs> and like the combed over hair, like the yeah. long kind of the hairdo that had a brief comeback a few years ago, but, but you can't um, not notice him. He just like, when he's like, he's just not a huge, like he doesn't look like a human being. <laughs> no, so when yeah, he's, he's on screen, you're like, you, you can't look away from him. That's the thing. that's always funny about Arnold is like people remember, I mean, most people, if you pulled people in the streets, remember him as huge. But when they think of that, they think of Terminator, they think of predator commando, that era. And like this was, you know, Mr. Olympia era (laughs) Arnold. And he's just like a fucking house. He's a wall. And yeah, yeah, immediately when he is its own like ecosystem. (laughs) (laughs) That saying he's got muscles in places most people don't have places. Um, (laughs) He right when he stepped into light, I was like, that's fucking Arnold Schwarzenegger. (laughs) I I couldn't believe it. Um, I forgot he was in the movie, to be honest with you. Yeah. But. As we mentioned, the most important part is the money's back. They find the $5,000 bill, and probably my favorite line that Elliot Gould has in the whole movie is, uh, 
Augustine asks him, what's this? And he goes, a picture of James Madison. Um, <laughs> but the money's been dropped off as Eileen returned the cash to Augustine, and then she takes off. Uh, Marlo chases her. You know, he's on foot. He's trying to chase her away in the car, and she, she gets away. Um, not before, though, he runs in the street trying to get her attention or at least, you know, jump on the car or something. He gets hit by a car, wakes up three days later in the hospital. A really good um, uh, fake out yes. is the first thing we yeah. see in the, the hospital is a guy who's in a, a whole body cast, his head's wrapped. One of those, you should see the other guy. Type of thing. <laughs> yeah, I, I like Elliot Gould's line there, too. He's like, yeah, I've seen all your movies. <laughs> to the guy with advantage. He goes, returns to Mexico, though, to learn it, through bribing the authorities there that Lennox is still alive, that his death was faked, um, and that he went down there. And this is where, you know, we kind of put it all together. Him and Eileen were in on it all. Okay, we don't put uh, it together, Alex. Altman just shamelessly take us on a car ride that's... <laughs> 10 minutes of exposition. Exposition. <laughs> Just, it's a, the Jurassic Park scene where uh, Mr. DNA tells you how uh, they <laughs> yeah. got the dinosaurs back. Right. It's just him uh, pointing with laser pointer to explaining to you exactly what happened. And it's not at all what uh, Philip Marlowe thought it was. By the way, like Terry Lennox, um, that guy is um, Jim Bouton, Bouton. I don't know. He was a, a professional pitcher. Like he was a played for the Yankees. Yeah, a couple of, and a couple of other baseball pitcher. I don't know why he's in this. It's very strange. He's not that great of an actor, um, but he's just <laughs> he's just not apologetic either. Like he's like, yeah, I killed my wife. Yeah, it was it was pretty bad. And then he's like, but you asked me to drive you to the border for an escape, and he's like, yeah, I was in a jam. That's what friends are for. Like you, that's what you're supposed to do. And then he calls Marlo a loser. He, like you never learn. You're a born loser. He's not wrong. I mean. <laughs> Right, <laughs> and that's when he just shoots him. Like all all of this, he just like blows him away. Were you guys surprised to learn that Philip Marlowe had had a gun on him the entire time? Uh, yeah, he could have used it in different situations. Probably might have been helpful uh, at some points along the way. But yeah, I was surprised. Like he didn't really show. Like you know, for the most part, Marlowe is for a detective, and in all the difficult situations he's in, he's pretty easygoing throughout most of this. He doesn't really slap anybody around or do anything physical. And then at the end, just like without hesitation, he just just shoots his friend. He shoots um, him in cold blood and then dances away. And then he passes Eileen on the on the way on his little dance. They don't um, even exchange right? a word or anything. It's yeah. literally the scene from Mask of the Phantasm where Andrea shows up and uh, – the Joker, he's not the Joker yet, but he comes out of her dad's house and she just looks at him and realizes what's <laughs> happened and just runs and <laughs> sees. No! Alien Gould, that's a Joker. Oh, what could have been? Uh, so was this So was this the whole point of the movie? Was the whole point of the movie to take this kind of 70s burnout detective and break him to the point where he becomes a murderer? Because if that was the point, I didn't feel it. He was so chilled the entire movie. And then he that, turns on a dime. That's an interesting take. I don't know. Like, there is one thing that um, uh, brought up, like, an uh, interview with Altman had said the idea that he really wanted, um, as far as their take on the role, was that um, is basically the idea was that um, the Philip Marlowe of the 40s or whatever had just, like, woken up in the 70s. That was their general idea. They called him um, Philip Van Winkle, I think, on, on like you know as a, a Rip Van Winkle like 
play on things. But it, that was the idea is that that guy with of that 40s sort of moral moralistic sensibility would wake up in the 70s and how would he – interact and, and and do things. And in the book, because they straight in the book, he does not kill uh Terry Lennox in the book. So that was a big thing too. And when Altman read the script, he that's that's one thing. He had two things. When he went to uh the studio, he said, I will do it if Elliot Gould is Philip Marlowe and if you like let me shoot like the end scene, if you let me shoot him, like him shoot him in the end. Those were his two conditions. So what's he doing in the book? Does he just bum a cigarette and sits down with him, has a drink? You know, it's been a minute. I think he confronts him, um, uh, maybe he turns him over to the cops or something. Um, it has been a while since I've read this book, so um, I can't say for certain. I just know he doesn't kill him in the end. Yeah. Well, Alex, uh, you're notorious for sometimes siding with the bad guy. Are you with Elliot Gould here or are you with Lennox? Is Elliot Gould overreacting uh, when he shoots his uh, former friend? Nah, man, he could have died many times over for that. Elliot Gould should have shot him. Uh, <laughs> we get the classic slow-mo fall and then the red paint mixed in the water where he falls. But <laughs> yeah, dude, Elliot Gould and Philip Marlowe could have died. Uh, Wade could have killed him. Verringer's clearly killed people before, far far worse, like dissected him, disemboweled him, <laughs> drawn and quartered him. Uh, Arnold Augustine, could have just ripped an arm off without even exactly about and it. beat him to death with it. And Augustine, <laughs> yeah. you know, could have snapped his fingers. Augustine was, you know, seconds away from cutting his dick off. And so it's <laughs> and Elliot Gould lost his five thousand dollar bill just to, you know, find out that he got screwed in the end. So and he lost his cat. Um, yeah, that's the worst part. I'm not even a cat person, but that's the worst part. And. <laughs> Eileen is lucky that he didn't give her the same fate, but <laughs> but in many ways he gave her a far worse one because now she's stuck in Mexico and doesn't know what to do. So <laughs> just getting to a foreign country and like you know having to lay low to begin with, and then all your plans go awry. It's yeah. like man, what the fuck do I do now? All that was missing at the end is that the Elliot Gould didn't jump and click his heels and it freeze framed while he was in midair. <laughs> yeah. yeah. All right. Well, we're starting to bleed into some real talk here. So Julio, I think it's. As good of an opportunity as we're going to get to just go ahead and move on to the second half. Yes. Yeah, so let me let me go f uh, feed the cat and then uh, we'll get back to this. The curry curry brand cat food. That's yeah. a curry brand. And it happens every day when some passerby invites your eyes. To come her way, even as she smiles, a quick hello. You let her. Hello, this is Philip Marlowe. 